All right, I want to start off reminding you that our last institute class was a class on worldview, and we used a book written by a guy named James Sire, and the book was called The Universe Next Door, and the book just laid out the basic broad categories of what a worldview is, and then he gives you examples of worldviews, and he works through Hinduism and Buddhism and Islam and naturalism and all these various worldviews to say this is how they think about all of these issues, and every worldview has to answer a certain set of questions. So these are Sire's questions, worldview questions. Every worldview has to answer these questions. What is prime reality, the really real thing in the cosmos? What is the nature of external reality? Uh, this second question gets kicked around a lot in debates and discussions about whether or not we're living in a simulation. Is this a computer simulation? Are we a brain in a jar and they're poking you with electrodes and you're all just imagining all of this stuff? That's a question of external reality. What is a human being? You've heard me say multiple times on Sunday mornings, this is the most pressing worldview question. In our day and age, our culture, people are totally confused on this question of what is a human being. What happens to a person at death? Why is it possible to know anything? How can you know things? Uh, how do we know what's right and wrong? That's a question of ethics. What's the meaning of history? Western people tend to think history moves like an arrow in one direction. Eastern people tend to think it's like a wheel that just spins round and round and round and round. Uh, last, what personal life-orienting commitments are consistent with this worldview. This last question is Sire's way of saying what you believe about those others impacts your life, and it's going to change the way that you live. So those are his questions, and I bring these up to you tonight to say this. Revelation 21 and 22 touch on all of those questions. Every single question, basic and fundamental to a worldview, are touched on in the last two chapters of Revelation, especially this question of what happens to a person after death, what happens in the afterlife, we're talking about that tonight, and what's the meaning of human history? What is everything moving towards? What's the great ultimate end that's coming in human history? Those are central to Revelation 21 and 22. So like I said earlier, every worldview has to answer these two questions, all of those questions, but what happens to a person after death and what's the meaning of human history? Islam would say there's going to be a judgment and that judgment's going to be based on your works. How good were they? How bad were they? And Allah will weigh them out and you will be rewarded or punished according to how your works, good or bad, weigh out. Hinduism says... History's not moving in a straight line, it's moving in a wheel. And the whole point of your life is to try to get off that wheel. And when you get off that wheel because you reach an enlightened stage, you experience moksha, which in Hinduism is compared to a drop of water being placed into the ocean. You're the drop of water, and in the end you just get absorbed into this vast ocean of ultimate reality. We kind of talked about that a few Sundays ago. Buddhism is the most bleak thing you can imagine, except for maybe materialism. But Buddhism says you're stuck on that wheel of reincarnation until you get off of it and you merge with the nothingness, which is like a candle being blown out. 
That's what you're trying to achieve in your life, to be like the flame of a candle that gets blown out, snuffed out, and it's gone. That's what you're trying to get towards. And materialism, Darwinism, secular humanism says there's nothing after this. This is all there is. After this, you die, your brainwaves stop, we put you in the ground, you're worm food. That's it. There is absolutely nothing coming after that. Revelation 21 and 22 paints a very different picture than all of this. And when you evaluate worldviews, you're looking for a couple of different things. You're looking for, number one, does this correspond with my experience in life? Does it line up with what I experience and know to be true? This idea that there is nothing else. Most people alive today and for the history of the world would say, I don't think that seems legit. I don't think this feels like that's all that there is. You're also looking for a worldview that holds together. All the pieces fit, everything fits nice and neat, and it coheres together. Correspondence to life, coherence as a unit. Revelation 21 and 22 is going to answer some of these worldview questions. Grant Osborne, opening quote, he says, This is the only extended description of heaven in the Bible. That may seem like an odd thing for you to think about, but this is the longest description of heaven in the Bible. And there's other things in the Bible that speak about heaven and eternity. It's not the only one, but it is the longest and the most substantial description of what heaven's going to be like. So, basic fundamentals. One last time. Revelation is built on seven sevens. We've talked about this multiple times. This is not new. Uh, the sevens are seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions of conflict, seven plagues, bowls, seven visions of victory, and then seven visions of the end. We've grouped these sort of into broad categories. The seven letters grounded in space-time history. You've got to think about these churches, real churches, real people, real problems. The book was written to them, not to you, not to Americans, but to these seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, the one who sits on the throne and the Lamb, that's the centering vision for the whole book. These blue sevens in the middle are broadly descriptive of the inner advental period, the period of history between Jesus' first advent and his second advent, his birth and his return. It's just a cyclical description. The seals take you all the way. This is what history is going to be like until Jesus returns. And then the camera angle resets, and we go all the way through it again with the trumpets, and then we go all the way through it again from a different perspective with the visions of conflict. When you read about the bowls, there's an important word John uses, and he says, with these, the wrath of God is finished. And John begins to talk in these last sevens with more emphasis on the end. Still descriptive of the inner advental period, but more emphasis on the end and the final culmination of things. And tonight we're talking about seven visions of the end. We actually started this last week. We're talking about it again tonight. Uh, I don't think I put this on your notes, but I just want to show you the seven visions as they're laid out in the last three chapters, 20, 21, and 22. Uh, last week we talked about the millennium. That's the first vision of the end. And then we talked about the defeat of Satan. And we noted that this defeat of Satan brings the unholy trinity 
to judgment and final judgment. The beast and the false prophet have already been thrown into the lake that burns with fire at the end of chapter 19, and now Satan is thrown in as well. The great white throne judgment, new creation is where we pick up tonight. And notice that vision of the end is one verse. Just one verse is a vision, and then there's some linguistic cues that John says he's given us uh, three more visions here at the end, a new relationship, the new Jerusalem, and the new garden. So those are the seven. We've got to talk about the last four tonight, and then we're also going to talk about the epilogue to the book. Uh, there's a lot here, and we're going to move through it pretty quick. Um, since this is our last week, I thought it would be good to remind you of the four broad ways that people interpret the book of Revelation. We talked about these week one, and we've kind of referenced them as we go, but I think it's just good review to think about this one last time. The futurist view approaches the book of Revelation and says everything in this book is way out there in the future. Most of the people who hold to this futurist view think Revelation almost exclusively describes the last seven years of human history. That's super common amongst futurist interpretations to say it's way out there, wherever it is, the final seven years of human history, the Great Tribulation, all of that, that's futurist view. The historicist view reads Revelation like one continuous timeline. You start in the beginning, and you move through, and it's one great long timeline until the very end. And if you take this historicist view, you're trying to figure out where are we on the timeline. Are we in chapter 13? Are we in chapter 20? Are we in chapter 7? Where do we fall in this timeline? And people have taken this approach all throughout church history, and you just, where are we? Nobody knows. And history goes on, and you realize, oh, we weren't where we thought we were. There's still other stuff that's going to happen. The idealist is kind of the view that we've taken. The idealist view of Revelation says this book mostly does not give you a timeline. It's not like a prophecy chart laid out nice and neat with chronological development, but it describes to you things that are going to happen over and over and over throughout history. And we've talked about the idea of recapitulation in prophetic writing, that John resets the camera angle. He describes a period and then he goes back and he describes the exact same period. He's not trying to stack timelines on top of each other. He's just giving you different perspectives uh, on human history. The last is the preterist view. This is the most interesting view to me. I had two preterist books as we've gone through this study of Revelation. And I just read them every week and thought, you have lost your ever-loving mind. I don't understand. The preterist view says everything in this book, happened before 70 A.D. Literally everything. So one of the preterist books that I read this last week on Revelation 21 and 22, which you think, surely they would say that's about heaven and eternity. No, they say that's all spiritual language. It's not actually about heaven. It's about the transition from God dealing with the Jewish people to God dealing with the Gentile people and this change in the epics. And it happened in 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed and God pivoted. And it's super weird to read those views, but there's a lot of them. And the most popular today is a guy named Doug Wilson, who's a pastor in Moscow, Idaho. And he's super inflammatory about all kinds of stuff. People love him. 
people hate him, but he takes that view and he's consistent with it all the way through. Uh, so those are the interpretive views of the book. Just a few quotes uh, as we jump into the beginning. Beale, who has a, a, a measly 1,400-page commentary on Revelation, Beale says, this is the climax of the book. This is what the whole thing has been building up to, this vision of the end. Uh, Gorman, very different in his approach to Revelation, but he acknowledges uh, it would be difficult to imagine a more fitting conclusion to Revelation or a more fitting conclusion to the New Testament or the entire Bible. Uh, Schreiner, you know I like Schreiner. He says this is the consummation of all things. It's out there in the future, the new world to come, the new creation. Uh, and then one last quote here from Bauckham. Uh, he says, this description of the New Jerusalem is a remarkable weaving together of many strands of Old Testament tradition into a coherent and richly evocative image of a place in which people live in the immediate presence of God. I gave you the Bauckham quote here to say this. When you go through Revelation 21 and 22, you cannot move a single verse without bumping into the Old Testament. Every last verse in these last two chapters of the Bible is pulled a direct allusion from something in the Old Testament. There is nothing in here innovative or John's just making this stuff up. John is seeing a vision and he's putting it down into words and the language that John uses to put this vision down into words is literally the Old Testament lifted up and put in. And the, it's just amazing. You cannot move one verse in any direction without bumping into the Old Testament. One example of this, I don't have this in your notes, but I'll put it up on the screen. Our ladies studied the book by Nancy Guthrie called Blessed, and she makes a comparison on this last two chapters of Revelation. She says, what happened in Genesis is happening at the end of Revelation. How the Bible began is how the Bible ends. And so she says, in the book of Genesis, God presented a bride to his son. He brought Eve to Adam. And at the end, God's going to present a bride, the church, to his son, who's the lamb. In the beginning, God created a land for his people. We're about to read about that. God's going to create a land for his people. In the beginning, God said to his people they should fill the earth. That's going to happen in Revelation 21 and 22. In the beginning, God walked with his people. We'll literally read about that in these chapters. In the beginning, God planted a tree for life. There's a tree for life in this final passage of the Bible. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve sinned, God placed a curse on creation. And at the end, it's fully and finally lifted from creation. So all of these things are getting tied up uh, in the book of Revelation. One last quote from Peterson. You know I like to poke fun at the rapture. He says, St. John's heaven is not an extension of human cupidity upwards, but an invasion of God's rule and presence downwards. just want you to think about this. Most American readers are obsessed with revelation and eschatology thinking, in the end, God's going to take his people up to heaven. And if you read Revelation, it's actually the opposite. In the end, God sends heaven down to his people. Heaven comes down. The new Jerusalem comes down. So just something to think about as we read 21 and 22. So let's read 21. And then we'll work our way through these visions 
before we come to 22. 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars... Your portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I'll show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the 12 gates, 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. Foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So, three visions of the end here we're going to try to wrestle with. The first is the new creation, and we'll move through this one pretty quickly. This is Revelation 21.1. Just a couple of things I want you to notice. Isaiah said really remarkable things 
compared to what John says here in Revelation 21. The old prophet Isaiah spoke hopefully about a new heaven and a new earth. You can read about this multiple times at the end of Isaiah. The parallels are obvious, which tells you John knew Isaiah. He'd read Isaiah. He'd internalized that book. He thought about that book, and when he saw this vision, he pulls that language from Isaiah to describe it. Second, the New Testament apostle Peter spoke soberly about a new heaven and new earth. And I'm going to let you read 2 Peter 3, but the language and the parallels are just striking. They're shocking how similar Peter's description of the end and a new creation is to what John describes here. And when you read Peter's description, he talks about all things being burned up in the end and all things being made new. And I think the idea being described by Peter and being described by John is not that God's going to snap and all created matter is going to go away and he's going to make all brand new, but that he's going to cleanse what has been made from all iniquity and all sin and all wickedness. And the parallel, at least in Peter, is the flood. God destroyed the world with a flood. Did he make it disappear? Did he snap it like Thanos and make it vanish into thin air? No, but he destroyed it in a way that was purifying and cleansing and removing uh, all the iniquity that had plagued the earth. And I think that's the parallel with what John's describing. He talks about the sea uh, in this passage. And I think the absence of the sea in the new creation is likely a figurative way to describe the absence of chaos and death. So that's verse 1. Saw a new heaven and new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Doesn't mean that it's disappeared. Means that it's been purified. And John says the sea was no more. And look, maybe we get there someday and there literally is not an ocean. The ocean's a beautiful place. And God created it in the beginning and he filled it with life. And I'm inclined to think it's going to be part in some way, shape, or form of the new heavens and the new earth. And I don't think he's describing topography here. I think when you read about the sea in the Old Testament, it's a symbol of chaos and death and destruction. And John's saying to you, look, the old is gone. The old heaven and earth is not what it is now. It's been made new. It's been purified and chaos and death and all of these things have been removed. So there's a few quotes here from Derek Thomas and James Hamilton. Uh, I'll give you a few comments as we go thing, uh, through things tonight. The Derek Thomas book, Let's Study Revelation, a really helpful book. Uh, he talks just straight through the text about almost everything in there, but it's not a technical commentary, and it's really, really good. Thomas is a preacher by trade, not a scholar or a commentator, and so his commentary is a really, really helpful read. Uh, he's a Presbyterian guy, so he leans towards a millennial approach, uh, which we talked about that last week. I don't really fall in that direction, but the book is really, really helpful. So that's the first vision, the new creation. Vision number two is a new relationship. John describes a new relationship between God and his people. And I'm just going to give you these. We'll go through them pretty quickly. In the end, we will be citizens of the new Jerusalem. So part of this relationship between God and his people is that we will be citizens of this place. And that's described as he talks about this city coming down and we're going to live there. Uh, secondly, in the end will be the bride of the Lamb. So he uses that imagery. Not only will we be citizens, but there will be a sense in which 
Uh, obviously, the church is the bride of Christ. Thirdly, in the end, we will dwell with God. Obviously, that's a parallel from Genesis. We will dwell with Him. Fourthly, in the end, we will be sons. John uses that language as he talks about they will be His people. He will be their God. They will be sons. New relationship. In the end, the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. I gave you 1 Corinthians 6 and Galatians 5 because those are lists of sins that Paul details out to the church in Galatia and the church in Corinth. And he says, look, if these things characterize your life, you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Not saying if you ever do one of these things, you're out. He's saying if this describes the manner of your life, it's evidence that you're not going to be part of eternity with God's people. John gives a similar list, and I'm making this obvious point for the sake of being obvious. The list you see in verse 8 is not exhaustive, it's representative. So when you think about the people who are going to miss out on the new heavens and the new earth, that's not it. That's just representative of the kinds of people that are going to miss out. And I will point out one word John uses at the beginning of the list. He says, as for the cowardly. All the other stuff in that list you can find other places in the New Testament. That's a unique thing where John singles out the cowardly are not going to be part of the new heavens and the new earth. And most commentators take that term as John speaking to the believers in these churches in Asia who are facing persecution and their lives are on the line, their neck is on the line, and some of them, we know this from church history, some of them cave under persecution. Some of them face the situation where the Roman authorities say, you pinch the, the incense and you say Caesar is Lord or we chop your head off, and they pinch it and they say Caesar is Lord to save their own neck. And most commentators think that when John talks about the cowardly, that's the group he's talking about. The people who don't conquer and overcome, but the people who cave under, under the pressure of persecution. And you'll notice in verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I'll be his God and he will be my son. You have to conquer to be part of this. And this is part of the tension that runs all the way through the New Testament and it's in the book of Revelation. Here in a minute, we'll read about the tree of life. Eating of this tree is free. You don't have to pay for it. You don't have to earn it. It's free. We're saved by grace. And at the same time, those who are going to be part of the new heavens and the earth are going to be those who conquer. And there's evidence of, of their faith in the Lord Jesus throughout their life. So that's vision uh, number four. Here's the next one. The new Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem. That one's five. This one's six. The New Jerusalem is described in verse 9 to 27. Um, I have a few things I want you to note before we talk about this city of the New Jerusalem. Um, I'll just put some of these on the screen. You can write them down if you want to. Look at Revelation 21.2. 21.2, John says, I saw the city coming down like a bride saw the city 
And then he compares it to a bride. Look down at 21.9, and it says, Come, I will show you the bride, and what he sees is a city. You see the, the flip? Verse 2, chapter 21, there's a city coming down. What's the city like? The city's like a bride. And then down in verse 9, he says, Hey, let me show you the bride. What's the bride like? The bride's like a city. And John's, that's John saying, I'm describing the same thing to you here. These are interchangeable images. Don't get too crazy with any of them. Uh, this city is the antithesis of Babel. And I'm going all the way back to the book of Genesis. People at Babel said, let's build a city that will reach up to the heavens. That was their goal. This is a city that comes down from heaven to the earth. It's complete polar opposite. This city is filled with the glory of God. Genesis 4. A man named Enoch builds a city, and from the get-go he builds it on violence. I'm going to kill people. I'm going to murder people. I'm going to take vengeance on people. Chapter 10, Babylon. We're going to defy God. We're not going to listen to God. Genesis 13, Sodom and Gomorrah. Wickedness, immorality, rebellion against God. All of these early cities you read about in Genesis, they spell out and they play out sin and all of its horrible effects on mankind. This city is different. It's the opposite of all of those cities. Here's the last thing I want to remind you of before we talk about the details of this city. We are reading apocalyptic literature. You do not have blueprint schematics in front of you right now. Okay? Jason Westfall is our in-house draftsman. We are not going to ask Jason to get on the computer tomorrow and say, Jason, can you put in all these details and then give us an image of what this looks like? We're not reading blueprints. Okay? Throughout the book of Revelation, we have said, we take the images and the numbers and the symbols seriously, not literally. You don't get to just make up whatever you want for all these images. You have to use your brain and take them seriously, but you don't take all of them literally. So I just want you to file that away in your head, all right? Here we go. New Jerusalem. It will be filled with the glory of God and the glory of the nations. I had lunch with my pastor a couple weeks ago. We were talking about this last lesson. Uh, I think my pastor is the smartest guy I've ever met when it comes to the New Testament. And this was the one question I wanted to hear his thoughts on. What does it mean when Revelation says this city will be filled with the glory of God? I think I got that. I think I at least have a category for that. Uh, Isaiah 6 Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The earth is filled with his glory. Uh, Revelation 4 talks about God and his holiness and all the glory that's being ascribed to him. Revelation says it will be filled with the glory of God and the glory of the nations. And we talked about this, and I think his thinking lines up with my thinking. What is the glory of the nations? Architecture, cuisine, clothing, music, culture. Uh, he gave the example as we were eating at Mama Cita's. He said, you're going to have Mexican food in heaven. 
You're going to have Chinese food in heaven. You're going to have music in heaven. We were talking in elders meeting earlier about death metal and whether death metal was a viable form of music. And I know some of y'all in this room are like, absolutely, it's a, it's a form. I don't know how that's going to look in heaven, but the glory of the nations is going to be there without the taint of sin and human wickedness. And I don't know exactly what that's going to be like, but it's clear that John describes that twice in this passage, that this new Jerusalem is going to be filled with the glory of God and the glory of the nation. So George Ladd uh, says the most striking characteristic of the city was that it bore the glory of God. And he just brings that up because it's the first thing that John describes there in verse 11. Uh, it is a city that has the glory of God. Uh, Shriner, just to make you wrestle with this, look at that last sentence in the Shriner quote. He says, we can safely say that there is both continuity and discontinuity between the present creation and the future world. And he's talking about this glory of the nations. He's saying there's going to be some familiar things there, some things that you appreciated in a small way in this life that you're going to enjoy and experience in the next life when heaven comes down to this earth. But it's not just going to be just like this life. It's going to be different going to be continuity and there's going to be discontinuity it's going to be the same and it's going to be different so you can wrestle with that next this is important the new jerusalem will be a unified city unified it's populated by those who have trusted in the faith once for all delivered to the saints those whose names have been written in the lamb's book of life here's the point i want to make to you when john describes this city he talks about the names of the 12 tribes. It's the 12 tribes of Israel. That's in the Old or the New Testament. Old Testament. And he talks about the names of the 12 apostles. Old or New Testament. New. And they're both there together as part of the foundation and the framework of this city. What John does not say is all the Jews are going to be over there and then the church is going to be over here. There is one people of God. And any approach to reading the book of Revelation that you might stumble across that tries to divide those groups and to say, look, God has one plan for ethnically Jewish people and he has another plan for the church and these two things are separate and distinct and they don't have anything to do with each other is total bunk. Because in the end, there's one city and it's the apostles and it's the tribes who are the foundation of this city, and that's what the city's built on. So Guthrie makes this point. Uh, there are not two communities, one for Israel and the church. God has one multinational, multicultural people. So you remember back in Revelation 7, John sees this vision, and first he sees the 144,000, right? And then he sees a great multitude. And when we talked about that, we said that's the same group of people. That's not two groups of people. That's one group of people that John sees. They can be described as the perfect and true Israel. They can be described as people from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue, but it's the same group. So Guthrie, I think, is right to make that point. Bauckham says the history of both Israel and the church comes to fulfillment in the New Jerusalem. Both of these groups are unified. Uh, next, the New Jerusalem will be secure and prosperous. The walls are high, and the gates are never shut. 
Look at verse 17. I just want to acknowledge one thing the commentators really wrestle with. It says in verse 17, he also measured its wall, uh, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is an angel's measurement. And I think if you read commentators, honestly, about half of them think that's the measurement of the height of the wall, and half of them think that's the measurement of the width of the wall. And I'm just telling you, in the original language, it's not entirely clear. But a wall that's 144 cubits high or a wall that's 144 cubits wide is a big wall. It's a big wall. It's a safe city. It's a secure city. It has gates, but the gates never close. It's like Waffle House. Why do you have a lock on the door at Waffle House? I don't know. It's always open every day of the year, 365, 24-7. It's always open. But they got gates but they're always open. It's a symbol of commerce. It's a safe city. It's a prosperous city. These walls are substantial. But I want you to think about something. These walls, if you want to be literal, 144 cubits, it's a big wall. You can do the math on a cubit. It is remarkably insignificant compared to the size of the city that John just is about to describe to us. So we'll move on to this. The New Jerusalem will not have a temple because it will be the final true temple. So let's talk about these dimensions here of the 12,000 stadia. Its length and its width and its height. If you do the conversion on this 12,000 stadia, it comes out to about 1,500 miles. Okay? So if you want to get your blueprints out and say, how big is it going to be? What's it going to look like? Uh, it's half the United States, length, width, and height. So that's big. Now imagine around a city of this size, a wall a couple hundred feet tall. It's kind of silly to think about, I'm going to build a city this big, and I'm going to build a wall this small. Okay? What is John talking about when he describes it in these dimensions? Maybe a couple of things. John lived, not in the United States, but where? Israel, which at that time was part of what? Rome. So if you just map this out over the Roman Empire, roughly in John's day, it's about that big. The land mass of the Roman Empire at this time, what you might call the known world, is roughly this size. So some people say, and John giving this city this dimensions is saying it's all of it. It's the whole thing. Like, here's the capital of the Roman Empire, this little dot. That's the city. But when the new Jerusalem comes, it's all of it. It's the whole thing. So maybe that's part of what John's trying to say. I think even more likely what John's trying to say using 12,000, obviously a round symbolic number, is an allusion to the tabernacle and the temple. And if you just look at a schematic diagram of how God told the people to lay out the tabernacle and the temple, over there in the black circle is the Holy of Holies. It was a square. Cube. Same width, same length, same height. It's this perfect cube. It's the place where God met with His people. And I think John's saying, you want to know what this bride, what this city's going to be like, it's going to be like the entire world 
is filled with this most holy place, the very, very presence of God. I think that that's what John's describing. When he describes all these jewels, this is like verse 20, 21. Um, it's close, but not identical to the list of the jewels on the high priest's breastplate. And some of the words in there, we're not entirely sure what kind of rock John's talking about. But most people think there's some Greek to Hebrew lost in translation stuff. He's trying to say to you, the high priest, he wants you to think about the high priest in his breastplate. He wants you to think about this cube at the heart of the temple and the tabernacle. When God told his people to build this, they had a curtain and what was on the curtain that separated it? You remember what they wove into it? Cherubim. What did God place at Eden when he kicked Adam and Eve out? Cherubim. You can't come into God's presence and God's going to guard it with these cherubim. You read about the descriptions of the temple and the tabernacle and how they designed it and decorated it. There's all this business about they're carving pomegranates on it and they're making lampstands that look like trees and all this stuff. They're decorating it like a garden. Why? Because they lost the garden. They lost the place where they lived with God and they dwelt with God. And this was a tiny, tiny microcosm of getting that back. It's a reminder. You lost this in Eden through sacrifice. You can get it back. And you can read in the Old Testament, multiple places in the New Testament. I read this out of the book of Acts in my personal Bible reading this morning. When they built this, when Moses built the tent, the Bible says he built it off the copy that God showed him in a vision. book of Hebrews talks about this. That Moses saw a vision of the very presence of God, and they built the tabernacle, and then later Solomon the temple, as a copy of what was seen in this vision. And it's an idea that Eden is going to be restored, and God's going to be with his people. That's why John says there's no temple. There's no physical, actual temple. The whole thing's the temple, because that's where God is with his people. All right? New Jerusalem will be a beautiful city with nothing detestable. So foundation stones are beautiful, the, the gates are made of pearl, the streets are made of gold, all that stuff. You can be as literal or as symbolic as you want. It's a beautiful city. Uh, the, the New Jerusalem will be a city with no sea, no death, no tears, no evil, no temple, no sun, no moon, no closed gates, all the no's that John mentions here in chapter 21.